Today's episode of Vice Versa, we're talking about electric airplanes taking off, what's in the US infrastructure bill, Arrival's self-driving tech, the electric Oshkosh fire truck, Tesla opening up its superchargers, and more. And as usual, I'm joined by Ricky Roy. How you doing, Ricky? Doing good, Matt. Had a video go out today, so it's always a good day. Uh, how about yourself? Pretty good. Things are going pretty well. What's your video about? Sure. So we'll start with mine. Yes. Yeah, so my video is something I've been really excited about. Uh, I've been working on it for about two weeks. It is on artificial photosynthesis solar panels. So, you know, the panels that we have today operate with the photovoltaic effect where photons of light hit a semiconductor and kind of shakes free some electrons and you collect that energy, which is what all the panels that we have today are based on. But this would be doing it the way plants do it. So really, really cool stuff. And um, it's it's early on. It's just in the research stage, but something I'm really excited about. Very cool video. I just watched it this morning. It's really, really good. I definitely recommend watching it. What about you? I put out a video on the Span Smart Panel. Uh, I got that installed a few weeks ago, and I've been living with it for a while. And I, not to give away the review, but I, I, I love this thing. It's, it's just, there's so much potential, and it, it fills kind of a missing gap in the user experience when you have a solar battery powered system, but it's for a very specific use case. It only makes sense financially if you're getting it installed along with a solar and battery system because it's 3500 bucks. It's kind of pricey. So yeah. is that the with installation? No, plus that's, no, that's, that's, that's just that's the figured. panel. Yeah. That's why it yeah. only makes sense if you're getting it in conjunction with a broader system because you could get fewer batteries. So it right. makes it can make financial sense. Instead of spending ten grand on an extra battery, you spend four or five thousand dollars on this, and it kind of fills that gap. But yeah, super jealous. I, I left you a comment uh, saying as much, but super super <laughs> envious, man. That's such a cool cool yeah. product. All right, so we've got a pretty uh, packed show today, and let's j- jump right into it with our first story on aviation. You got to love the name. It's like EV and aviation. Yeah, it's perfect. It's a uh, Israeli company who's working with DHL to deploy twelve redesigned Alice e-planes from the company. So this is a partnership that they've had in in, in the works for a while. Uh, deliveries will begin in 2024, but DHL is part of an early pilot program. This company has gone through some design iterations. Like for example, you'll notice a more traditional tail. They had a V-tail, I think, in earlier generations. But you can imagine being an electric airplane, the aerodynamics of this thing have to be just like perfect. I mean, you can really tell you can see how it tapers in the back. I mean, this is this thing has been in a wind tunnel uh, its whole life. We don't know the battery information, and I think that's really what they're still in development with. They probably have various packs to figure out what they can uh, achieve, and they're probably waiting for breakthroughs to happen in the next couple of years to to give them further range for less weight. But they're talking about a not uh, a range of about 500 miles, which is pretty awesome, and uh, they they have. Electric propeller motors, right? You, you, you're probably thinking, yeah, we, we don't see this very often anymore. We see jets, but a jet engine is actually a combination of moving air very quickly, but also the, the, the combusted fuel and compressing it and shooting that out the back. So that's why I, I actually want to do a video on the future of potential jet engines, electric jet engines or plasma jets or another thing. But this is a traditional propeller driven plane. The major drawback with that is the airspeed, which is about 220 nautical uh, nautical uh, kilometers, 220 uh, knots, which is about 250 miles per hour. And so you combine that with the range of about four to 500 miles, and you're basically having to take off and land and 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 make jumps, kind of like more like a Cessna than like a private jet, if you will. 
but it's a really cool concept and they i mean they've they've seemingly made quite a bit of progress and evolved the design i really think it'll come down to how much they can carry so here's their website and one thing i was looking at was about the range or the amount of uh, cargo capacity that it has because that, so the max payload is 2500 pounds and the entire craft weighs significantly more so the mean takeoff weight is about 16,000 pounds and yeah the payload in the different configurations is about 2500 pounds uh, those numbers are because of battery weight typically on an aircraft the fuel you know doesn't weigh nearly as much so you want to try to maximize that um, and minimize this because the more the the craft weighs the more lift you have to make the more lift you have to make the more induced drag you have um, it's a vicious cycle but really cool concept and i'm i'm excited to see more about the company um I'm actually going to try to reach out to them and see if I couldn't uh, have a chat with them or maybe even tour their plant. But it's a really cool company doing some pretty cool stuff. What do you think, Matt? This is kind of the future of short haul flight. It's like that's where electrification is going to happen. You're not going to see this in long flight, like transatlantic flights. You're not going to see electric. You're probably going to see hydrogen before you'd see electric there. Uh, but for this, this is I'm really excited to see this because um Aviation already has a deal with Cape Air, which operates here in New England. It goes between Martha's Vineyard and uh, the Cape and New York City. So they're going to be getting a bunch of these planes as well and doing short-haul flights on that route. Um, whenever they end up doing that, I am definitely going to be booking a ticket and trying it out because I really want to ride one of these things. But one thing about DHL, they did say they're going to squeeze an extra 100 pounds into their cargo weight because it looks like they're only going to use one pilot. So they'll be able to do 2,600 pounds of cargo, which is not that much. But the thing that's really cool is like um, Cape Air has said about these the, the Aviation Alice airplane that they're calculating they're going to be basically paying for operational costs about 40% of what they spend today. So that's that's why this is important, because it's going to drop costs for, for these flights dramatically. Even though they, right now they can't carry as much, the costs are going to be so much lower. It's a really good point. I'm wondering though about is recharging time. So if you were going to try to overtake a, a short haul, they claim really? it's they claim it's thirty minutes. You can imagine how many kilowatts. Yeah, it's gonna be huge. Okay, so that's got to be a huge charge rate. Yeah, which means you might have to you know retrofit airports and stuff with new trans like new power transformers and to get more electricity out of them. But yeah, that's. That's about what you need. If, imagine you pull in, you deplane, you plug, you know, you plug in, you deplane, you you board, and you're charged and ready to go. And it's going to prove to be way more reliable because as great as the jet engine has been, uh, I'll take electric motors every day of the week, uh, yeah. given that given a choice. So that's really yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I, hopefully, I'll have some access, but I'd love to do a video and talk about them a little more in the future. But cool, yeah. cool company. Next up, we're going to talk about. The U.S. Uh, infrastructure bill that is on its way, we now know kind of what's going to be in the bill and what's not going to be in the bill. I thought it was going to be good to kind of run through this just kind of briefly as to like what's in it. It's a $1 trillion package, which is 2,700 pages long, which is just bananas. But you were talking about things about like $7.5 billion <laughs> for EV charging stations across the United States, which is going to focus on highways and routes that connect more rural communities about it's about half of what Biden originally wanted, but it's at least something. Seventy-three billion is for upgrading the electrical grid. It's going to be thousands of new miles of new resilient transmission lines. 
This is also very important for EVs because as we start to go electrify everything, it's like the demand for electricity is going to be going up. So we have to be upgrading our grid as well. Seven and a half billion for zero or low emission buses and ferries. $66 billion for passenger and freight rail upgrades um, like in the Northeast Cor Corridor and elsewhere. $100 million for roads and bridges. $21 billion for cleanup of polluted areas. And what's not in the bill, and this is the one I think a lot of people watching this are going to be interested in, is there's no nothing about the EV tax credits. It's not going to be in this bill at all. It's going to be in something completely separate. And there's nothing about anything like EV school buses and things like that. But for EV owners, this still is a big move because there's that $7.5 billion for the EV charging stations that's part of this bill. So what's your take? Interesting about the, the electric vehicle credit, which is probably the most direct impact that consumers will have. But I'm glad, glad to see that we're putting a focus on infrastructure and charging infrastructure in particular. Because currently we we have a couple of players, you know, we have Electrify America um, and they're making progress or, you know, they're making, they're making some progress in terms of number of stations and reliability and everything else. But we do need definitely a surge of, of, of some spending. And this might actually even more than the tax credit be the best way to spend the money here because it's not really a highly profitable thing to be a charging infrastructure company. There's so much overhead. I mean, it costs like $700,000 in some of these sites to build a charging station. So it could be really expensive and you're basically, you know, you're not making that much money. You're, you're paying some base rate for electricity and then you're upcharging a little bit at least. So I think that really probably would be the last domino to fall naturally left to the private markets. So I'm glad to see that the government is, is getting involved there. And I think indirectly it might actually be a better move in terms of EV adoption than giving people a one-time check to, to then say, okay, hope you can make it wherever you, wherever you live to, to charge and, and, and get by. Yeah, I, I agree. It's like the two things that I'm most excited about are the EV charging and the uh, electric grid upgrades. Because for those people that don't live in the United States that might be watching, the United States has a very old grid system. And on my span panel, when I was talking at length about all the benefits for blackout situations, I've gotten so many comments from people in Germany and the UK, like, do you guys really lose power that much? I never lose power. And it's like, <laughs> I live in the Northeast of the United States. Most of the power lines in this area are still above ground on telephone poles, and they get taken out by ice storms, heavy snow, branches falling in storms, taking out power lines. I personally, maybe once or twice a year, I get a power outage. I have friends that just live a couple of towns over that get six, seven, eight outages every single winter, and sometimes they could last for days. So it's, yes, it happens. And if we can do upgrading of the grid, get more power lines underground, more high, you know, better, you know, more resilient electric lines put in, that's going to benefit the resiliency of the entire grid at large. So it's like, we definitely need this upgrade in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's gone un, you know, unfunded for far too long. Mm -hmm. How long do your average blackouts last for? I'm kind of for curious. me. It's it's a couple minutes where I am. It's not that bad. Um, but like like I said, my, I have friends that when the power goes out, they live in Andover, Massachusetts, and they can power could go out for a few hours to several days. The worst ones I've had where I ha where I live now, I had a power outage for about a day and a half. That was the longest one okay. I've had to go through. Yeah, my ten years in San Diego, I had a power outage for about one day one time. Um, but typically, yeah, 40, I've had a 45-minute one the last yeah. year. Yeah. It's bizarre. I know. Yeah. <laughs> people people that aren't from here find it shocking. But, yes, yep, things do happen. 
All right. So the next story is about Arrival, a company that we've both talked about on our channels. What's really cool and interesting about Arrival is their their fundamental reimagining of the factory and how they build their vans and stuff. Arrival is a UK-based company that has a really cool idea and a concept for a van that I think you can probably agree to. It's just such a cool-looking van. And they build it out of like this composite thermoplastic and it's easy to form. You don't need to have like huge stamping machines and stuff. They're built in small factories. But this story is about their autonomous driving. And what they showcased is they had this first test where they were able to to show one of these systems working without any driver at all. And that's been cool. But for me, if anybody who's thinking that this means that arrivals well on their way to a self-driving, like a robot um, <laughs> delivery truck, <laughs> I would say probably not. This is one of those engineering challenges where it might be easy to get to the first point, but then, or to show off like, hey, here's the concept. And it could be like 10 years before you're finally done. So um, I, I think it's a, it's a little early, but I'm glad to see that they're, they're working on this. What's really what's crazy to me is that these companies that are building new EVs have the funding or the resources to be able to tackle problems like this. I, I, it's so ambitious. I would have been happy just building a van, and they're doing this as well. They they partnered with Uber early on to to have like the you know kind of their first iteration of it. While they've been working on this in house as well, their you know their automated driver systems, and they're targeting you know levels zero to three and level three autonomous is pretty good it means that you still have a steering wheel and a person might have to take over but it's expected to handle every situation and so again very ambitious plans um but i would say take a deep breath they're probably a long ways away unless they partner with the right company because you've seen what tesla is doing how long it's taken them and this the sheer volume of data that tesla has is, is amazing they are using computer vision which is cool there's and they're kind of minimizing the, the amount of sensors and stuff which i think is the right direction um, but yeah, I think it's going to be a while, but it's a cool look to see just how ambitious the company is. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, it's this one, this gets me excited because it's like they're a very small company. I was shocked when they announced this because I was like, really? It's like you guys are taking on autonomy. But one of the things that if if like in that video that you, you played earlier, they talked about how they've partnered with, I think it's like nine different um, organizations to on this one project. This robo pilot is made up of like nine different groups. It's made up of colleges and universities in the UK and different businesses like themselves. So it's kind of like a whole bunch of smaller uh, groups kind of pooling their resources because it's such a major undertaking. So it's it's really cool what they're trying to do. And right now, obviously, they're only starting with trying to get a, a the demonstration was having a vehicle that can drive itself around the depot, which is a very controlled area, and it's it's the safest place to test. And once they perfect that, they're going to start rolling out onto the UK streets to try to go broader. So yes, they are still years away, most likely from like they're they're not caught up. To, they're not at the same place that Tesla's at, obviously. But it's still awesome to see a smaller startup company like this seeing that the future is in the software and automation and driving like this, and they're going to go after it and they've pooled the resources with other companies to make it happen. It's, it's great to see this. Would you, would you rather see them spend the money on their core competency, the micro factories or any other sort of manufacturing steps to get to production faster? I kind of feel like, you know, you have to, you have to pick and choose where you, where your spending goes. 
Um, but you think it's? I think it's. Smart. Would you rather see them shift it? Okay. Yeah. I mean, because because the future, the future, the future is this, and if they don't start working on this for five years, they're going to be that much further behind. Their micro their micro factory strategy is a very affordable way to get up and running quickly, and they're already doing that to build UPS trucks and working with you know Uber. So I think they've kind of got that figured out. And so like the fact that they're also doing this in conjunction at the same time, they're walking and chewing gum at the same time, they're looking towards the future. I think it's a smart move to do that. Yeah, because otherwise you're banking on some company figuring this out. Yep. And uh, the tough bet. Yeah, yeah I'm with you. <laughs> it makes sense to diversify a little bit. Yep. All right, so next up, we're talking about Oshkosh, a company I didn't know anything about. But it's Oshkosh Corporation. And part of the reason I didn't know anything about them is they are a specialty uh, vehicle maker for specialty trucks. So they make things like fire trucks. They make things for the military. Uh, they basically have t- created the first EV fire truck that's in operation here in the United States. And that's no small feat. So I got to tip my hat to them for kind of being the first one there. Um, Volvo has done something similar for themselves, but this is the first one in the U.S., and it's built on the Volterra platform is what they're calling it. It still has, the downside is it still has an internal combustion engine, but there's a very good reason for that. And it's because it's, the batteries are only good enough for basically getting the truck around and for quick action. So like if they have to use the pumping to do some short-term pumping for the uh, fire hoses, it'll work fine. But if they have to do extended operations, you really need a, a generator that's going to be able to put out the power for long periods of time. So it still has an internal combustion engine for those times. So it's going to be make it a very reliable, robust solution. But for getting to and from the fire station or going out to like EMT calls, it can be completely battery powered. Uh, so zero emissions. The one thing I thought that was funny about this company is like because I didn't know much about them and I was looking into them. They're also the company that created <laughs> the new U.S. Postal Service uh, EV. And if you've seen images of that, yep monstrosity that thing is <laughs> embarrassing and i thought it was funny because on their website what they did say was when they were touting that vehicle they in the quote was this vehicle for the post office was designed by oshkosh engineers and based on parameters provided by the usps and to me that felt like a, a way to kind of deflect and say if you don't like the way this looks point your finger over there we were just doing what they asked us to do so i thought that was funny but it's it for me this is very exciting because this is just another example of EVs in large form vehicles where typically you would not think it would work. Here's an example of it working. What, what's your take? <laughs> I, I had I had made a video about Oshkosh or about the, the USPS truck. Uh, by the way, if you go to my screen, this is the monster that he's talking about. <laughs> yes. It, it's almost... It's almost um, like they deliberately try to make it hideous. It's a it's a weird thing to to, to to be after, but I mean this is it's just a really ugly truck. It's oddly ugly, and I remember the article that I was reading about this compared it to the Royal Mail trucks that Arrival was building, which were gorgeous. These yes. like nice red shaped, just beautiful vans, and I was thinking, what the heck is this? So. Um, the, the part of that story was that this truck f- was slid in as part of the previous administration. So Biden had mentioned that we're going to go all electric and we're going to do all this stuff. But this was a lingering contract from a previous administration. It's not electric. They're not planning on making it electric. There were electric proposals, but this is the way we went. 
Uh, you mentioned Oshkosh Corporation. Uh, always a fun name to to say. Not yeah. the kids' clothing line, uh, yeah. But, but yeah, largely military contract. They build a bunch of like military trucks and stuff. And this fire truck is really cool. So this to me was the first positive or really exciting thing I've heard from Oshkosh, because sure it's not pure electric. There's like a generator component to it, like you mentioned. But imagine this: like when a when a truck. Typically, like especially in urban settings, so maybe not everywhere, but a truck pulls up. The first thing you do is you go tap into the fire hydrant, right? Because you have thousands of gallons on on hand. But if you're fighting a fire for more than a couple hours, you'll be out of water. So first thing you do, come in and grab the hydrant. Imagine having this massive 100 kilowatt, 200 kilowatt charging infrastructure right next to every hydrant in the future or, or something like that, right? Where a truck like this pulls in, you tap into it and you're charging it back up. A truck like this needs to reserve most of its capacity for water. Electric, you know, EV batteries currently are, the energy density just doesn't compete with diesel. So maybe in the future, yeah, maybe the truck only needs to have about 80 miles of range and you get to wherever you're going and you could you could plug it in and, and charge it. It runs all the systems and pumps and stuff. It's purely quiet, doesn't make any sound and you can, you can run it indefinitely off the grid. That could be a thing in the future, right? We ran water and hydrants everywhere already. I mean... In comparison, that's way more complicated. Like you need high pressure. That water is coming out at like mm -hmm. I don't know the number. Somebody might know what what is a hydrant coming out at hundreds of psi, not your sixty to eighty uh, psi that your your houses are running on. So we've already figured that out. I think that's kind of the hard part. Run electricity to it, and in the future, fire trucks could look just like that and maybe ditch the the gas engine altogether. I, fire trucks aren't really the problem. There's only a couple hundred or mm. thousand fire trucks compared to the millions and billions of cars. So in the grand scheme of things, this is a win and I'm I'm excited to see what the future could could look like with with yeah. this technology. It's more about Oshkosh creating the platform and now they can do even more beyond this. Exactly. That's kind of the exciting part. I couldn't find many details on the battery, like what battery technology they're using or the size or the actual range of the fire trucks. But I did find that they said that the battery will recharge in 90 minutes. That's the only kind of spec mm. I found. That's always the part they leave out because they're hoping for, you know, the further we can delay, maybe the chemistries keep getting better and we can we can get better. Yeah. Um, so we have an answer for what the hydrant pressures are. Uh, Smell my musk said 420 psi, which is really specific, and then stickers at 20 horsepower. I love that. That's fantastic. Um, he says correct between 400 and 450 uh, psi, which is a lot of pressure. Um, so very cool. Helen Lawson says an aluminum air battery would be the best thing for a fire truck. That is very interesting. I have a video on that, and uh, that's actually a very interesting uh, take. But yeah, I think this is a cool story, and I'm glad to see that they're investing in something interesting. Uh, yep. and, you know, they're they're broadening their horizons beyond hideous uh, mail trucks. It's, <laughs> it's a good thing. So the next story is is one that I was particularly interested in. And it's Hyundai says that the Ionic 5 will dominate Tesla on miles per minute of charging. They don't say charge speed. They say miles per minute of charging. There's some, there's some subtleties here. But the first thing we've talked about in the past is how quickly a car, uh, an electric vehicle can charge is not that intuitive. This car runs on an 800-volt architecture. So we've talked about how in the past, higher voltage systems typically can charge faster. Not always. There's still limitations with the battery and the chemistry cooling, things like that. But what they're claiming is that this, you know, this Ionic 5 will charge on 
this is an Ionic charger in Europe, but Electrify America here in the US. So on a 350 kilowatt charging um, stall, that they would be able to charge 10 to 80% in 18 minutes. So here is a graph of charge speed. Anybody who has an electric vehicle and is plugged in, you know that your charge speed does not stay the same. What typically happens is early on, there's like a ramp up. Tesla's, when because Tesla's integrated really well and it knows when you're going to a charging station, about 15, 20 minutes before you get there, it'll give you a little pop-up that says preconditioning. What they're doing is they're warming up the battery pack to basically cut this time down. So the, the, when the pack is at full temperature, you can raise the, the charge rate up a little bit higher. So this initial speed boost up is a function of how quickly you can get the batteries prepared. Then you'll, you know, you'll continue to climb to some point where you'll hit your max charge speed and then it'll taper down. And the reason is the battery, the battery's ability to accept charge is reduced as the state of charge, how much charge it has increases. So you'll get like, this is a kind of a stepped curve. It's not the most ideal visualization, but the, the bottom line, and, and, and we were talking about this before the show, uh, it's not often I get to bring up calculus on vice versa, so I'll do that for a second. But the, the, the name of the game here is area under the curve. So if you take this area under this curve, that's how much energy you're, you're deploying. Now, if you wanna make that shorter, well, you, you shrink this curve this way, make it make it skinnier, and you make it taller. That would be how fast you can charge, and that's what you want. If you have a slow charging car, well, then you're going to have a very fat and short curve. So you never get very high in terms of charge speed, but the amount of time you'll need is much, much longer. So um, to deliver as much energy as possible, you want to go up as high as you can and stay as, up as high as you can. And some of the things that get in the way are the... The, the battery pack's ability to discharge heat. If the battery pack gets too hot, it'll it'll taper that charge rate very quickly because you don't want to uh, degrade the batteries prematurely. So we've talked about how the Taycan is actually a really good charging car. One of my friends, Kyle, who runs out-of-spec motoring, set the uh, EV cannonball record in a Taycan in the dead of winter, believe it or not, with snow and stuff. But what he found was that the Taycan is able to keep a really high charge rate for a very long time. Tesla's, like my Model 3, I think is is really good, but not perfect. I, like the 250 kilowatt charge speeds, I see that for like a minute or two, and then it starts dipping down really quick. And by the end, I'm around 50 kilowatts near the end, typically. Uh, Matt, wh what kind of charge speeds have you seen, and what do you make of the story in general? It's, it's the same thing for me. I'm typically seeing charge speeds. Like I was just saying to you before the got on the, the live stream, uh, I was charging in Connecticut at a 250 watt kilowatt charger. And it was that 250, like what felt like, like that it was there for just a couple of minutes. And then it quickly ramped down to what I normally see in a older version supercharger. So it was kind of like the benefits of that 250 were very short lived. And then it kind of started ramping down very quick. Um, so yeah, I, I'm seeing the same exact thing you are in my model three. Um, it's, it's one of those things that's the most misunderstood part of EVs it when is. people are talking about like, oh, this charging network is 250, this one's 350. It's like that almost doesn't matter because what matters more is that charging curve. If you can keep that charging curve higher or longer, that's what matters. We were also talking before we got on about the the more meaningful way to describe it is that 10 to 80% charge time. And you even made the point of you take that 10 to 80% uh, charge time and then say how many miles you got in that time frame. And that is the most meaningful way to describe it to people. Like you're going to get 120 miles from, you know, 
in 15 minutes going from 10 to 80%. It's like knowing that is going to make way more of a difference in the conversation than just saying, I can charge it to 50. Well said. Well said. Yeah. The, the thing people typically do is they'll do a divided by. So like, you know, it took, I got 50 kilowatts and it took 30 minutes. Therefore my charge speed is this. The minute you do that though, you're, you're doing a linear averaging and that isn't that telling because what if, and also if you're trying to make the fastest times possible on a road trip, drive down to about 10%, charge it up to about 50 or 60% and then get hit the road again, because that final 30, 40%, you're getting much slower uh, charging speeds and stuff. But it's, <laughs> this is the sort of stuff I think that we need to enlighten people. And also there needs to be a, a cleaner, easier way to, to tell people about how charging works. When I was in Oregon, I met with a company called Chargeway. Uh, Matt, uh, the founder's name is Matt, and his whole vision for Chargeway. Have you have you ever used Chargeway? No. So his whole vision was: look, when somebody fills up gas, they know regular, mid-grade, and premium. Supreme is it premium? I, I've already forgotten all the gas terminology, man. Or octane, right? Eighty-seven, ninety-one. Like they know octane. That's it. That is the only data point any gas driver driver has. So what he did with the Zap was, first of all, the different charging standards are different color bubbles. So Tesla's red, Chatamo's blue, going away. Green is CCS, pretty much everybody else. Then he has a number system between one and seven. So if you go to a Tesla 250 kilowatt charger, that's a Tesla. So that'd be a red seven. If you do a 150, it'd be a red six. So basically between this number format and this color format, you pick your car, you tell them, I drive an Ionic 5. And then it would just be a number. It would almost it's he's trying to take the guesswork out of it. And his 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 logic and his app is really cool. So anybody who has an EV, uh, check out Chargeway. Uh, it's a free app. He they make their money by talking to utilities and the the back end of it. It'll always be free. And it's it, it kind of takes a little bit of the guesswork out and makes it like if I was gonna tell my parents about charging, this is how yeah. I want to explain it to them. I don't want to talk about calculus. I I like to keep the calculus out of it. Yes. I agree. It, it just it needs to be simplified. That sounds like a really good user experience that they've created, and it needs to be. I think you, there needs to be a standard just like that. For I for think you'd appreciate it, Matt. Actually, yeah. I think you'd definitely appreciate it. Yeah. Are you ready for the last story? Let's do it. Kind of connects to the story you did it, earlier. It connects directly to that story. Uh, Tesla opening the supercharger network is going to. It, the part, okay, so part of this story is we already knew this. We already knew that they were planning on opening it, but there was speculation as to like why now and. We kind of have a big hint, and it's that big infrastructure bill that we just talked about before, because that $7.5 billion that's going to be invested into the charging networks is only available for charging networks that are open to basically any EV. And right now, Tesla is Tesla only, so they would not be able to tap into the grants that are going to be coming from this bill. So Elon opening up the supercharger network is... I don't want to say it's a cash grab, but it's a it's a way for them to kind of help supercharge the supercharger rollout because they will be able to take advantage of some of these grants to speed up the supercharger rollout, which obviously makes perfect business sense. It's great for all of us. It's great for the industry, especially since there's opening it up to everybody. It's going to require a an adapter, obviously, for non-Tesla owners, which is the one downside, I would say, in this. And this is where I kind of come back to, I wish Tesla would kind of go the route that they're doing in the EU. They're doing it there because they have to, because they're being forced to. But Tesla's over there use the CCS charging adapter. It's like, it would be great if we could have the same thing here. 
and then you wouldn't have to worry about adapters for anybody. We're all just on CCS. Uh, that would be kind of my wish list. What's what's your take on this story? Yeah, this first of all, it's a very smart move on Tesla's part because mm-hmm. Tesla's funded it themselves so far, and I've I've, I've mentioned they they pay between like three fifty and seven hundred thousand dollars for a new stall. And if you've noticed, their ambitions are wildly more ambitious now. Uh, the Fireball Supercharger Station, anybody who lives in California, I think it's like 60 stalls covered in solar panels. That has to be a multi-million dollar uh, installation. So do they really want to keep doing this themselves? Or do they want to... Remember, their mission statement is to, to accelerate the world's transition. How do you do that? Build more stations and get more people buy, buying electric vehicles. So the best way to do that, I think, would be to open up... And you figure, okay, they're going to open up the supercharger stations, which means other people can be using stalls. And so yes. now Tesla owners might be waiting. You'd hate to be that. But if they're growing their supercharger network way more quickly, as a result with, you know, with funding from, from government funding, well, that might be, it might wash out. We'll have to wait and see. Currently, I think, especially here in California and the U.S., like Tesla's dominate EV sales. So I, I think it could work out okay. But in high traffic areas like Los Angeles, for example, whenever I'm in LA, I, I have to get in line to, to supercharge. The only place I've ever been where I've had to do that. Um, sometimes there's a mall in San Diego and there's a couple places in the Bay Area, but as long as they manage that well, I think it's a good move. And I think it'll I think it'll work out better. And I think it'll really help other car companies mm-hmm. sell EVs because I think people have heard the stories kind of out. Electra America has a lot to improve on. Uh, they have a long way to go. And the supercharger network seemingly just feels so bulletproof. I, my trust in it is like absolute. I yep. never doubt it. I, I I would also like Tesla to release an adapter for us so that we can <laughs> use non-Tesla chargers. Because like in a pinch, it's like if there's the closest charger is Electrify America, I'm going to give it a shot. If I had an adapter, I would definitely try it. I, 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 I'm very excited by what this means with the infrastructure bill incentivizing this and seeing tesla finally creating that unlock for everybody to take advantage of it it's going to be really exciting to see what happens over the next i don't know three four years it's it's i think it's going to be like throwing gasoline on a fire i think you're going to see a real speed up of the rollout that's how you want to see money spent like the idea that it it's already taken off and you're just throwing gasoline on it i think you're right i think that's an apt analogy and i think the next couple years will feel like that before we wrap this up i should we could i kind of want to get your take on this too um, I've spent the last couple of weeks on the road and I've met with some really cool like CEOs or company people with some really interesting insights and stuff, especially around the charging standard. So you and I, we've talked about this. We're fans of standardization, you know, USB-C, right? I want to see everything I own have a USB-C charging cable on it at the same time. So the CCS w- would be the standard, but, um, the CCS plug Kind of sucks, if I'm honest, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially mm-hmm. compared to the elegance of Teslas, right? Teslas can handle DC or AC from one plug from the same prongs, right? The car is smart enough to understand what you're doing. You plug in at home, it's alternating current. It routes it to the inverter, to DC, to the battery pack. You plug, you go to supercharger, the same plug, the same leads. It goes, hey, this is direct current, and it just bypasses the inverter and goes straight to the pack. All It's, it's super elegant, right? It is... The, the Tesla supercharger is the most elegant charge cable. I'd love to see anybody who could, who, who thinks there's a more elegant solution, but it is the most elegant solution. Sadly, it's not a standard, right? The CCS standard, especially the one we have in the U.S., is, is just terrible. If you've ever, have you 
You had mm-hmm. the Tycon for a while. Yes. Tell me that thing is easy to manipulate it's and to awful. plug in. It's it stiff not... and it's hard to kind of rotate to get it in just right. It is. Tesla superchargers, it's never a problem. It's like right in, no problem. Completely agree. If you're near the, if you have to stretch out pretty far with the CCS cables, like if your car has a charge port in the front door and the cable barely reaches, then it becomes like almost, it becomes a real chore. Um, so I actually think throw that piece of junk away. I don't like that. We're early on it. We're still early enough that we're not stuck to anything, right? We don't want to be stuck with something stupid. And my personal opinion is CCS is stupid. It's a terrible plug. We could do better. We need to, we need to get Tesla in the room. They need to be like the front of the class, sit down and figure this out. And and then just never think, look back. I will, to be fair, the, the CCS standard in Europe is different. Mm-hmm. Um, let me try to pull up a picture while I talk. But what's interesting about the CCS standard in Europe is it's actually better. It's a little more squared off. It doesn't feel as oddly asymmetric. Um, Europe. Or maybe you can pull it up. Maybe you can, if you could pull it up, Matt. Um, or anybody who's seen them before. The one in Europe looks better. It's not... It's a little more squared off. It's not as elegant as Tesla's, for sure. There was some technical reason why they didn't want to go Tesla's route. I think it had to do with some some requirement that you can't run AC and DC through the same leads or something dumb. There's no reason why we can't do that. <laughs> Tesla's already shown you that it's easy to do. It's elegant, and that should be the standard. Um, yeah, CCS is bizarre because the AC's on top, the, the DC's on the bottom. The end result is this far inferior cable so um okay yeah so there yeah so on the on the right is the ccs here in, uh yeah this is a it's really hard to to google this um yeah but if you keep scrolling there okay you see that really square cable there you go this one right here that top right this square you see how it's a little more squared in europe yep. Yep. it makes it a little more easy to, to deal with whereas in the u.s it has this kind of triangular the shape is off and oblong it's it's hard to deal with so sorry my little rant i'm with i'm with you it's like i always i hate to bring i always bring this up with tesla but it's like apple is a good comparison apple created the lightning port the the jack because the usb standards sucked usb a micro usb all that kind of stuff they sucked and they couldn't do what they wanted to do so they created their own lightning thing going there blazing their own path master of their own destiny but then you created this where like the rest of the industry slowly started to consolidate on US, a specific USB standard. Apple is part of the USB standards board and actually helped to design USB-C. So they had their hand in creating this amazing, compact, beautiful little USB port, which is very much like Lightning and, and Thunderbolt. But it's it's a universal standard that they were part of the conversation. And it feels like we need that now with charging infrastructure where... Tesla created their lightning port. They need to get on the standards board with everybody else and basically help them to design the ultimate plug that everybody can move to. Uh, CCS3 or whatever you want to call it. It's like they, they do need to I love have it. their hand. Yeah. That analogy is perfect because lightning is, it was a step, but it wasn't the end all. Correct. I, I think the USB-C is even better. Um, I think we talked about this, but lightning is still USB-2. It's super slow. I don't mm-hmm. know if I've told you that, but, but it shows you that, look, it's bi-directional has all these perks we take that and then we roll it into like a bigger and apple was on board with it and and, and i think my ipad your ipad we there are USB-C. my laptop is USB-C. I can travel with one cable uh, almost and um, it's the way to go we need to get on i actually know some people who 
there's a lot of like lobbying and things. So one of the things we don't want to see is government spend money stupidly because they're incredibly good at that. What we want to do is start to tell them like, look, before we just start throwing like Electrify America, for example, I'm, th- I remember stories about how they took forever to roll out and they were just buying up hardware that wasn't really the right hardware in the interest of just saying, hey, we have 6,000 locations, but none of them, uh, you don't want to use them because they're, they're not going to work. But so let's get smart about this. Matt, I'm going to get you in front of the right people. I love that <laughs> analogy. That's so perfect. But thank you as always, guys. We're, we're humming along. And um, thank you so much for joining us and letting us talk about the stuff happening in the world today. Yeah. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Hit the notification bell so you don't miss an episode. We're live every Thursday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can also listen to On The Go with the podcast version at viceversa.show. As always, thanks so much for watching. We'll see you in the next one.